0: Hey, I'm Dr. Judy, and welcome to Supercharged Life, where I help you discover new ways to create success, wellness, and fulfillment, and give you tangible tools to supercharge your life. Today, we're gonna talk about how to become a better self-advocate, especially for your health and mental health. You play a crucial role in your own care, and the more that you are empowered to do things for yourself, the more it will lead to better outcomes for you and your family. I was inspired to talk about this topic specifically because there have been so many recent studies about how the pandemic has affected mental health all around the world. And the pandemic has tripled depression in adults in the last few months. There's been this big study by Boston University. They had about 1,441 participants in this study. And the results showed that almost 30% of adults reported depression symptoms in contrast with only eight and a half percent before the pandemic. And what's worse is that you'll see the depression that people are reporting is much more severe as well. So it's not as much a mild depression, but people are saying, this is significant for me. And we also find that depression is affecting people disproportionately. Women are reporting more depression than men. Asians are experiencing an 18.7% higher prevalence of depression symptoms during the pandemic than they did before. And also individuals who have less economic resources are also reporting higher levels of depression. This probably doesn't surprise any of you. Things have been really difficult during the pandemic. There's a lot of unknowns about the future. People are afraid for their own health and their loved one's health. People are losing jobs or having to change the way they work. They have additional stresses, like having to work at home and educate their kids at the same time. People have described being at home as a pressure cooker because everything happens there. And it also draws attention to problems you have in your relationships, because now you're all in one place. You're sequestered together and you have to deal with it. So there's a lot of environmental stressors that are happening that's making depression more difficult for people to deal with as well once you're experiencing it. But I think one of the worst things is that we find that depression in many ways is a silent killer. It's a leading cause of death for both men and women, but especially men are not talking about it as much. They're not sharing that with their loved ones or not getting professional help. And so then the depression goes on and on and it doesn't get better. So I think it's really, really important because of everything that's going on that we talk about how you can be a better self-advocate and you are just going to so love the guest that I have for you today. He's one of my friends and my colleagues. He's been through depression himself, and now he's going to talk to people about how he healed and how he's helping everybody else become a better self-advocate. Stay tuned to the very end for my supercharged tips of the day, plus an exciting giveaway. You don't want to miss it. My fabulous guest today is Kyle Kittleson, on-camera host and strategist for MedCircle, the most trusted and largest online platform for mental health education. I'm very lucky because I've been working with Kyle for, gosh, maybe going on two, two and a half years now. And I'm a MedCircle educator, such a wonderful opportunity to get to be part of this wonderful initiative but it's hard to believe that Kyle you you're so accomplished so put together such a great advocate for yourself and others but you were diagnosed with depression at nine years old and over the years kyle has successfully treated his depression and now advocates for others with mental illness on med circle kyle interviews the top specialists in the world asking the questions so many of us want answers for develops content for the sites and continues to learn about mental illness every single day and he's an animal behavior expert which actually fits right in with everything that you're doing now, too. So here he is today to talk about all of these topics and more. Welcome to my friend, Kyle.
1: Thank you, Dr. Judy. This is so fun. I'm So I know everyone says I'm honored to be here. I'm literally honored to be here. This is awesome.
0: <laughs> well, I love it because Kyle's always interviewing me. Yes. And today I get to interview Kyle and I'm so excited to dig in. So Kyle, tell me how you got to MedCircle.
1: Well, I was working in Los Angeles on camera and the founder, Doug Colbeth, uh, found me and asked me if I wanted to shoot a few videos for him as the host. And of course, I said, yes, we filmed a few. I thought, well, that's the end of that little gig. I'll move on to the next one. And he posted them or MedCircle posted them online and they got millions and millions of views. And he said, well, maybe we should do a little more of these. And we kept doing them. And then he hired me on full time as the host but that slowly moved into a more strategic role so i still do the hosting but i also do the strategy as well and i think it was a nice fit for me because coming from an animal behavior background certainly that's very different than human psychology but in college i took psychology classes to prepare to work with uh animals from the behavioral side and so there are some things that uh, you know go from the animal behavior to human behavior And it's been truly, I mean, I can, I can think of three great pleasures in my life and working with MedCircle is one of them. I mean, it has been so transformative for me. I am a MedCircle member as well as a host. And I never knew the important role of mental health education until I started with MedCircle.
0: It's amazing that Basically, there was this fortuitous event where you met Doug and Doug is wonderful. I love Doug. I've met Doug and he really, really cares about the mission of MedCircle because he's been very open about his own suffering through mental illness as well. He was diagnosed with bipolar and in the past he also suffered from substance abuse. And he, I can tell this is a passion project for him. And I remember the first time I met you, Kyle, I mean, you were just a burst of sunshine. You're such a wonderful host. It's clear that you love your job so much. So tell me a little bit about the strategist work, because I know that that's been a new initiative that actually has emerged in the last few months amid the pandemic.
1: Yes, yeah, so well the pandemic has certainly affected us and probably in different ways than a lot of other companies because we do we have the only streaming service for mental health education at least that I'm aware of. And so it has put us in a position where people are even more ready to learn online than ever before. And so when I took over this new role role as being the host and the strategist, we did a few things. One, We released an app. It was one thing that all of our members had been saying, where's the app? Where's the MedCircle app? I got to see a MedCircle app. I'm like, fine, we'll get a MedCircle app. So we put out a MedCircle app. Um, The second thing we did, which you've been a part of, Dr. Judy, are our MedCircle live events. They love watching you on MedCircle. But naturally, as you learn more, you start to develop more questions. And what better person to ask to get those clarifying questions answered than the doctor who you've met through one of our med circle series. And so these live events allows our members to come onto a zoom call, ask questions. It's not treatment. It's education and they're able to get answers live and in person. We've also really amped up the type of written content we're doing. Our blog and our free newsletter at MedCircle.com puts out free resources every single week, tackling big issues. And our writers are licensed, credentialed therapists, psychologists, and psychiatrists. These are not people who are just great at writing. These are also people who work in the field. And so it's really important for us to maintain that elevated, trustworthy, credentialed brand that people are accustomed to. When you go to MedCircle, You should feel good about the information you're getting. You shouldn't question it. And I know that when you Google something, do you not just get more confused? I Google something. I go, well, I don't know to believe this site or this site or that person (laughs) or this person. It's too confusing. We've taken all of that out of the way because the last thing you need when you're trying to figure out your mental health, trying to learn about the mental health of somebody you love is to be questioning the information. And so removing that, people get clear answers, and they're able to find peace and recovery, I think, in a faster amount of time.
0: Kyle, you're speaking my language, and that's one of the reasons why I fell in love with MedCircle and with you since the very first day we met, because you're all about actually giving people credentialed, accurate information. I mean, I've heard so many people come to me when they see me at my office, and they'll say things like, well, I saw on Google... And I'll ask them where they found that information, because it was inaccurate or certainly painted a particular condition in a very, very bad light. And they'll say, I was on a subreddit, (laughs) or I was on Quora. Some other forum and social media, as wonderful as it is, there's good advice on social media and not so good advice on social media. And so when I am talking to you, I can tell that you guys take your work seriously. And that really does make me feel good about the work I get to do with you guys. But you yourself have dealt with depression and it started at the age of nine. And I really wanted to talk to you today, especially because there is such a stigma against men speaking up about any kind of mental condition, whether it's depression or anxiety or an eating disorder or even substance abuse, there just seems to be some kind of a weird barrier that no matter how much we talk about lusty, destigmatize mental illness, 30 to 40% of people might experience some type of clinical depression at some point in their life. You hear these statistics and you even hear how much worse it's gotten in the pandemic. And still, It's hard for men and boys to talk about it. Why do you think that is?
1: Well, I I think it's primarily the way our world discusses emotions uh, to each gender. Even, you know, I run all the support emails at MedCircle. So if you email support at MedCircle.com, I'm going to handle your issue. And I can see that a lot of people emailing in are women. They are more confident in themselves to talk about it. They're more comfortable sharing their experiences. And it may be because of society's uh, communication with them about sharing those feelings. As a male, as a boy growing up, I played sports. I did competitive activities. And it was don't cry, get it together, win. Don't cry, get it together, win. And over time, that just translates into don't cry, don't show emotion. You're always strong you're always happy. There's a new term that I recently learned maybe a few weeks ago called toxic positivity. And it's this idea that so many gurus and influencers and authors are just shoving positivity down our throats. You can't let your brain get upset for even a minute. You can't have one negative thought. That's, that is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. And what happens is this pursuit of positivity that can never happen. It's a, it's a terrible pursuit because it's impossible ends up making us feel worse. And so I think certainly men, uh, according to the studies have rates of this that go undiagnosed or they don't talk about it. But I'm seeing even more across the board, regardless of the gender you are, that we are not given permission to be in a bad mood, to feel terrible and to feel blue and I want to tell people you don't feel good. All right. You don't feel good. Tell me what that feels like. I don't feel good too. I'm going to tell you my friend what it feels like to not feel good. I'm allowed to have that. And I think allowing us just to feel whatever we're feeling should be the new goal.
0: I think that is so important that people realize all of that positive psychology work. I think it has done wonders for our field in many ways. But as you mentioned, it kind of is too much of a good thing at times, or maybe it's been used and abused a bit. And those examples that you gave are perfect. This idea of you're supposed to be happy and shiny all the time. Who feels that way? No one, right? But- It feels like this goal that we're all supposed to want to achieve. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, social media doesn't help with that because most people post their highlight reel. And then you think, well, I don't feel that way. Well, that's how they felt for maybe five minutes. And then they posted about it. Right. But it's this perception that everybody's life is so much better than yours. So when you were nine and you first became depressed, what was going on at the time? And did you tell anybody? Did you feel alone? How did you deal with it then?
1: Well, to clarify, I was diagnosed with major clinical depression, I think, uh, when I was nine years old. I had been showing signs and symptoms of depression, I think, years before that. At the drop of a hat, I would fall to the floor and scream and cry. If I did not truly, if I got a 94 percent on a test instead of a 100, m- not only my day was ruined, days of agony. Um, although I never reached the point of self-harm through things like cutting, I would punch myself in the face, slap myself in the face. I remember one time I was having this episode and I ran to the kitchen drawer and pulled out a knife and my mother like slapped my hands to get the knife out of my hands. I was, I was in pain being in my body. And even more than that, I was in pain being in my brain. That's what it felt like. It was an inescapable prison that I was trapped in. And I had no way to put a word on it. At, you know, seven, eight, nine years old, you're still learning about emotions, let alone something as um, intense as depression. And luckily, man, I'm so thankful for this. Both of my parents, my dad even told me the other day, he goes, one of the best things we ever did for you is put you in therapy at nine years old because they thought about it. Because back then I was born in 1986. So in the 90s, it was not like it is in 2020. We it was you're putting your kid in therapy and he's nine. He may just need to get smacked across the face and tell him to shape up, not put him in therapy. That was the ideal. And they decided to no, we're gonna put him, we're gonna put him in therapy. So I I saw a therapist, I saw a psychiatrist, they put me on Prozac. I don't know why, but the Prozac they put me on was a liquid. I still can have that taste in my mouth right now. My mother would give it to me over a sink and I I would just hate it. And I noticed the difference in a few weeks. And it was like I had bowling balls taped to my head and my shoulders, and then they were removed. And I could walk into class and go, oh, there are other kids here. And the teacher would talk and I'd say, oh, I can hear you. And I would come home and I would see my brother and go, oh, my gosh, I have a brother. <laughs> I was like, so cool. I was a human being again. And my parents noticed, I noticed. And that that was the start of treating this depression. And it, it, it didn't change my life. It saved it because I was not living a life for the first nine years.
0: I think that is such a visceral picture of what depression can feel like for you. And obviously, everybody's feeling about depression is different. Mm-hmm. But I so appreciate that description because... For people who do judge other people who suffer from mental illness, just get over it. Like you said, that toxic positivity and even the toxic masculinity, because you're a male and there's certain expectations of males. And possibly that's what the people associated with your parents were thinking. If they were to judge your parents' decision to put you in therapy, Is like, what? Just tell Kyle to get over himself. It's not a big Mm -hmm. deal, you know? And people are more likely to say that to boys than girls, but obviously it can happen to both. But The idea that you can just get over it is something that we need to banish right now. Because if you're telling me that it felt like you had several bowling balls taped to your head and you couldn't see, you couldn't hear, it was this weight and burden that you were carrying around. And then once you got treatment, things started to actually clear up and you actually saw the environment around you, the people around you, you got to engage in life in a different way. It's a huge Message to say, get the help that you need. And for different people, it doesn't have to be medication. It doesn't have to be one form of therapy. There could be a different form that you like better, but get the professional help so that you can live your life.
1: And in an interview I did with Dr. Sue Varma, she's a med circle doctor. We did a series on depression. And she said, You would never tell anybody to get over the flu. If someone called you and said, I have the flu, you would say, Get over it. You go, Oh my gosh, what do you need? Like, how can I help? You know, take some medicine. And it is not to equivalent, you know, flu equals depression, but a physical disease or a physical illness can have the exact same consequences as a mental illness. And I'm also a gay man. And I, I, looking back, I came out to my mom when I was like five or six and she was like, are you kidding? You don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, okay, I don't. And then I came out to my dad when I was like, Ten, I think, and he's like, "Really?" I was like, "Oh!" And then I got scared. I was like, "Just kidding!" And then I finally came out when I was eighteen. But to not tell my coming out story, I only say that because even as a child who had not come out of the closet, watching TV and seeing to uh, a man and a woman rom com, watching cartoons and seeing the prince and the princess, hearing adults talk about homosexuality and their straight relationships, it it did not cause my depression. But it certainly caused anxiety and stress, which I think elevated the severeness of my
0: depression. It makes sense because you're not seeing people portrayed in popular media in maybe positive ways that are like you, right? So it's this idea of these rom-coms and you look at these beautiful, shiny couples and they don't look like you. And they don't look like your aspirations for what a good relationship should look like. And I would imagine that that does feel isolating. And I think so much of this depression that people keep to themselves, that isolation, obviously it has a negative impact on how you feel. Like you said, it didn't cause your depression to not be able to come out to the world or or to truly feel like you can be yourself, maybe around every single person in your life. But certainly there was an issue with, amplifying some of your distress, right? Making some yes. of it a bit worse, or maybe harder to manage. So how how did things change as you got older? So you got into treatment when you were nine, things got better. But did your depression come back at some point? And where are you now with your depression?
1: Well, I have made the mistake, the critical mistake of thinking, I can do this with no help twice. And because when you're feeling good, You think, I don't need to go see my therapist that much. And then you cut it down to once a month. And then you see him once a month and you're like, you know what? I don't need him anymore. I'm out. And then you're doing pretty good. And you go, you know what? I don't even need those meds anymore either. I feel great. You get off your meds. And maybe you are great for a little bit. But eventually, those depressive symptoms, for me, sneak back in. And it starts small and you don't notice it. And then they get bigger and you're in denial And then for me, by the time it was too late, I had my, my two panic attacks. And and one was, I was, uh, I was in the dentist and they said, Oh, I'm in the chair. And they go, we can't take your insurance. And I lose it. I start crying and sobbing and I'm like pounding the chair and they go, it's okay. It's okay. We can work with you. I'm like, it's not about the insurance. I knew what was happening. I was like, I'm having a depressive panic attack. No question. And I went into my car and Dr. Judy, I screamed, I kicked, I broke my windshield, I kicked my windshield and I was on the side of the road for about 45 minutes to an hour. And, uh, and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I was pretty broke at the time. And I called my dad and I said, dad, I need some money because I need, uh, to go see somebody right now. Cause the, the, this isn't like a sleep it off, take a hot bath and drink some tea moment. This is i uh, I'm either going to go to the hospital or I'm going to go see somebody and so um, I went and saw a therapist. And I, I'm going to share this story because, guys, the journey sucks sometimes, okay? And this it sucked for me right now in this story I'm telling you. I went to this therapist's office in Beverly Hills, la-di-da. He's on the top floor in this huge office. He's in probably a $10,000 suit. I'm in tears. And all he's telling me is about how many famous clients he has. I'm literally going, <laughs> and he's going, you wouldn't believe how many celebrity clients walk through these halls. I have seen people you would not even believe. And I'm like, well, that's fine. I was, it, it was awful. It was awful. He sent me home Whoa. in the same state that I was in. And I only say that story because if I had not had a history with therapy, I would have said, well, therapy is a waste of time. Yeah, I'm at my lowest and I supposedly go to the best. And all he can do is brag about his celebrity clientele. That is, that is not indicative of all therapists. That's indicative of that guy. And Mm -hmm. so I found a better therapist and, and I got back on my meds and then I made the same mistake again. And, uh, I went off everything and I had another panic attack, got help. And now I'm on my meds where I am at with my depression. I take 20 milligrams of Paxil every night before I go to bed. I don't skip it. Um, I see a therapist on a regular basis. And I'm educated not only on my depression, but on the signs, symptoms, and the treatments I'm on. I was diagnosed with depression at nine years old. I'm 34. I started with MedCircle, and I was like 31, so three years ago. I had never heard of cognitive behavioral therapy. And I had been in therapy since I was nine and I'm a 30 year old man. I hadn't, I didn't know what that was. I had let alone dialectical behavior therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, let alone, let alone a breathing exercise. Mm. This type of education we're missing in the therapist's office. And it's something we can get ourselves so much of, especially the beginning part of therapy is education. I never understood what depression was. I never yeah. understood it. They just said, that's what I have. That That's what you can label your feelings as depression. I said, great, got it. And I never thought to go look it up, go research it. The, the step people miss, I think, in their mental health journey is the education piece. People mm-hmm. know they can go on meds. They know they can go see a therapist, but they don't realize the importance of getting properly educated on whatever mental health disorder they're trying to address, whether it's for them or somebody else and the different treatment modalities out there. There There's so many, there's so many.
0: There's so much in there that we need to unpack, but absolutely education comes first because with that education, you feel more empowered. You can advocate for yourself and you understand what it is to manage and treat your condition. So I want to talk specifically about these moments where you decided everything's working great. Now I'm going to go off my meds at that time what was your understanding of the process? Because if everything's working, wouldn't another idea would be just to stay on what's working, you know, go to therapy, stay on the meds. So what was your thinking to say, "eh, let's just stop everything. Cause I feel great.
1: Oh, because I have an ego, Dr. Judy. I'm like, I don't need meds. I'm not a guy who needs to be on an antidepressant. I'm Kyle Kittleson. I, I, I hang out with animals and I go on camera and I live in sunny LA and I have a boyfriend and we do stuff. I, I, this isn't the life of somebody who takes an antidepressant, and it was an ego thing. I had to get out of my own way, and so that that's what I thought and, and one of the times, actually, um I was broke, and I'm like, mm-hmm. wait a minute, I gotta spend sixty bucks a month. No, 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 no i'll I'll just figure it out. I'll just cry, okay, and save sixty dollars well it, it it doesn't work like that. there is a difference your your audience knows this, but in case there's a new audience or <laughs> There's a difference between being sad and being depressed. I can handle sadness, please. Oh, my gosh. Sadness, got it, got it. I can do sadness. Depression is tough, real tough. And so um, that, that's worth any amount of money or time or effort to address. But yeah, to answer your question, it was my ego. And now my ego's yeah. in check.
0: Yeah. Well, and part of that came from education, understanding that depression is a biochemical illness. It's not really something where, oh, it's just a weakness in character, which of course is one of the really terrible misconceptions that are out there or this idea that, oh, well, I can just will my way through it. Right. Again, Mm -hmm. I I'm just gonna, if I put my mind, you know, into this and Think positive. It's just going to all go away. And we know that that's not how depression works or any mm-hmm. mental health condition for that matter. And what I find is so startling is that depression and suicide are ranked as a leading cause of death among men, but they're still far less likely to seek mental health treatment than women. So we talked about some of the reasons for this. Maybe there is that toxic positivity, um, this idea of I'm tough, this isn't really my life, I I shouldn't have to do it. But why do you think that men haven't really caught up as much to the other gender in terms of the idea of I can just go and get some professional help, whether it's talking to a person or getting on some meds? What are some of the other missing pieces here?
1: Well, I think a lot of it is embarrassment. Um, It's looked at as a weakness. And to be fair, when you are in the midst of depression, I don't view that as a strength. But where I think the where a, a perception shift can happen is how we attach ourselves to our thoughts and our feelings, and in this case, our depression. Through med circle, this is this is one big takeaway I learned at med circle, was that I used to look as at my depression as part of Kyle Kittleson. My, I was Kyle Kittleson. I was 34 years old. I'm a male. I'm depressed. I'm kind of witty. You know, all of these things that I think about myself, depression was one of them. I removed that from my identity. Depression is something that I manage, but it's over here. You know, you guys can't see this, but it's I'm, <laughs> it's next to my face. My depression yeah. is over here. It's not something inside of me. I don't relate to it. So when I go to therapy and when I take my meds, it's because I'm managing this thing over here. I'm not fixing anything wrong with me. I'm good. I've worked on myself. I continue to work on myself. I got a lot of other problems I got to work on with myself, but depression is something that I work on and it's over here. Now, whether that's right or wrong or true or false, I don't know, but it's something that allows me to move forward in life with less weight, with less baggage. And I think if men specifically would look at their anxiety or a personality trait or their depression and say, that is something that I can manage and deal with, but you better believe it's not how I'm going to define myself. And just like you would take in your car to go get the oil changed or to go fix the brakes, you can tell I'm not a car guy, but you would go take it in to go fix it and tune it up. Just because the brakes were bad doesn't mean the car sucks. It just means you had to go get the brakes checked. So you don't suck at all. You just gotta go in and do a little improvement on this thing over here. And when you do that, you will see the results. And once you see the results, you'll be hooked because you know that your life can be lived better, that your happiness can be greater, that you can be a more full, holistic, healthy person.
0: I love this idea of separating yourself from your illness and not identifying yourself by your illness, but this is a very common idea that people have. I'm a depressed person, I'm an anxious person, I'm somebody who has an addiction, I'm an addict. Right. Mm -hmm. Even that type of statement, it does do a number on your self-esteem and you start to treat yourself like you're a malfunctioning, damaged person when you're not right? Because Mm -hmm. you don't walk around thinking, hi, I am diabetes. Nobody really does that. But somehow people walk around saying, I'm depressed. And that's it. But depression is still a state. It is something that's changeable. And it's empowering to do an exercise that you separate yourself from your thoughts, your feelings, and of course, your illness. And you and I have done demonstrations of this together. I love the idea of physicalizing a negative feeling or an emotion, taking it out of yourself, setting it on the table in front of you and seeing it as basically an object that is not you. It's a separate entity that is physical and therefore can be dealt with. And I wanted to talk to you about an interesting article that I found, which is this idea that self-compassion can change the relationship between how we self-advocate And also how we feel about our health and mental health outcomes specifically and i think this is just so great especially to follow up on what you just said which is you know be kinder to yourself don't treat yourself like this damaged person because you're not so the results of the study just to summarize for everybody here they found that patients with self-compassion tend to treat themselves with kindness and mindfulness and that helps them to cope with their illnesses And self-compassion interventions have been implemented to help patients to alleviate this perceived pain that they have. And it really works well. And not only do you find that that can be helpful, it actually also helps these individuals to ask more questions of their doctors, to do more research before they go to the doctor's office. And at the end, they also feel more satisfied about how that treatment went. They really feel like they got the benefits that they wanted to get. So why do you think there's a relationship there, that kindness connection to how well you advocate for yourself and then how happy you are with your outcomes?
1: Well, I... I don't I mean, why do I think, I guess, is the question, because I certainly don't know. But I can tell you it is true. I remember the way I would think about myself in the middle of depression, of a depressive episode. And I remember the way I thought of myself as a child. And I thought I was such a waste. I mean, a complete waste of space, of the air I breathed was, a wa- was wasted on me. That is what. That is how I moved through the earth. And because I felt like I had to live, I overcompensated by trying really hard at school and trying really hard at activities and trying to show everybody that I'm not a waste, really trying to show myself that I wasn't a waste. And the process of therapy and getting out of that depressive mode. And by the way, in my opinion, you take an antidepressant four to six, eight weeks later, you're feeling good. Fantastic. Now your head's above water. Now let's talk about what else is going on. The biggest moments, realizations of my life have been through these discussions at MedCircle and in therapy. And so when you start to realize how you are communicating with yourself, you will change it because When your head is above water, you realize you're not a waste of space. So stop talking to yourself like you are a waste of space. My self-compassion to me is this is something I fixed this year. And when I say fix, it's always a work in progress, but I've improved (laughs) it. I used to feel so guilty about how much I slept. I I mean, it was awful. I used to to lie to people. Like if they call me and I'm like, hello? And they're like, were you sleeping? I'm like, oh, no, I... Um, no, I have to be quiet because, you know, like I'd make up something, <laughs> like it was a shame that I was asleep. And I sleep a lot because it helps my Crohn's. And if my Crohn's is settled, my depression is better as well. I brag now about how much I sleep. When I go, how was your night last night? It was great. I slept for 14 hours. What'd you do? I t- Because that's just who I am. That is my truth. And I'm not going to beat myself up. For doing something that is beneficial to me, even if somebody else doesn't like it. And maybe that's where it comes down to is self-compassion could be misconstrued as being an egomaniac, as being narcissistic, as being too braggadocious. But look, if you're telling the truth to yourself and you are freaking amazing and you did do that, then that's the truth, baby. And you're allowed to tell the truth. And if it makes you look like you're pretty great, well, maybe it's because you actually are. And there's nothing wrong with that. And if you have people in your life who don't like it when you're really great, well, my opinion, you got to find new people because that is, that is, you have to be your truth. And if people can't get behind your truth, those are the wrong people.
0: And that's absolutely correct. You know, I think telling these individual stories that have affected you and how you personally perceived self-compassion affecting your mental health outcomes is so important because when we are compassionate, when we are kind, we do more to help ourselves. And that's why if you have a little bit more confidence and you acknowledge when you do great things or you know what's good for you and you do it and you don't care about the judgment of others... Mm. That is how you get better. That is how you go to your doctor's office and you say, wait a minute. Uh, I don't really want to hear about these celebrities. This is about me.
1: That's right. You know,
0: right? Like if you had more self-compassion at that moment, maybe that would have been a response. You know, Absolutely.
1: And, you know, I used to see a therapist who I can, I mean, uh, probably 10 times he fell asleep during our sessions. I saw him for years. Whoa. Why did I allow Whoa. that? Why, I, I, I'm like, sir, I am paying you to listen and I'm paying you to ask poignant questions and you are taking my money and sleeping? No, 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 no. That would never happen today. But what, how did I value myself when I was with him? Not enough, not enough to stand up for me. And yeah. I would have probably stood up for somebody else. If that was my friend's therapist and I happened to be in the room, I'd say, wake up for her. She is paying right. you. Why would I do that for somebody else and not myself? That's a question uh, we have to ask. You are your priority. You come first. Mothers, you come first. Fathers, you come first. You come first. Always, always. Because you cannot be the best mother in the world until you have taken care of yourself. I've talked to a lot of patients out there. Uh, Ginger Z went to a, she's the uh, meteorologist on good morning America. She went to a psych ward for, I think, seven days. She said, it's the best decision she ever made. A mother had read her book about going to a psych ward and she had been putting it off for years because she said, I can't, I have three kids. I can't go do that. She finally did it. She said, it's the best thing I ever did for my kids because she took care of herself. You've got to put yourself first.
0: Self-care is not selfish. Self-care is selfless. That's just another stigma that we have to overcome. And I'm so glad that you told that story and that call of action to everybody out there who's thinking, I don't have time for me or I'm not worth it. You are worth it. Everybody here is worth it. You must take care of yourself. You have one mind, one body and one life, and you've got to do everything that you can to make this as good of a life as possible and to Mm -hmm. be able to feel Great so that you can do all of those things that you want and bring extra quality to your life and and achieve all of those goals and all of the dreams that you have. Kyle, I love your just I just love you. I mean, I love you, but I also love love your mess, I love your message. I love all of the things that you have learned yourself and really have made that um an incredible platform to be able to educate others from a place of I've experienced it. I think that that is such an important type of education is to be able to hear from other people who have dealt with it, who are overcoming it, and who are also saying it's a lifelong thing. You keep learning and you keep managing and we're all here to help one another, to build a community. I believe that that's part of what's slipping away during the pandemic, which is also partially causing people to feel even more isolated and not get education and treatment for their mental health conditions. And that's why it's been so wonderful to talk to you, but I wanna talk to everybody about a couple of other projects you have going on. We've talked a lot about MedCircle. You guys have to check out MedCircle. It is an amazing online-based platform where you get credentialed, accurate, education that's interactive and really informative for yourself and for people that you love. But also Kyle is an animal expert and a behaviorist and pets have been a part of your life since childhood. I don't see Callie right now. We can see each other right now on zoom and Callie is my obsession. I just, I pretend, I pretend. Yeah. Callie is Kyle's dog and I pretend that Callie is my dog. And I have all these photos of Callie uh, me and Callie together. And I just pretend that she's my pet. But, um, but Kyle has a brand new podcast called the Pet Collective. Can you tell people about this podcast? Because it was so much fun to be a guest on your podcast.
1: Yes, Dr. Judy was a guest. And she actually launched uh, the entire podcast, Jukin Media and the Pet Pet Collective have created this podcast for the pet obsessed. And it uh, comes out every Tuesday, we talk about tips, tips and strategies and tools to build your relationship with your pet. Dr. Judy came on to talk about the mental health benefits of caring for a pet. And um, I will say one of the, uh, when I was in therapy one time, I was really low in my therapist. I was seeing her for weeks and she was, uh, we weren't getting anywhere. I was like, this girl better get it in gear because I need a breakthrough. And she asked me one question it changed everything. She said, when were you last the happiest? And I said, mm. when I was with an animal. I had worked with animals. And she said, and uh, when is the last time you did that? And I said about four months ago. And I stopped because I realized this is where so much of my bluesy down sadness feelings were coming from that I had gone four months without being connected to an animal. That thing that feeds me so much was removed. And so for four months, I didn't have this thing that I love so much. And it seems obvious now that I say it, but when you're going through life, you miss those types of things. So pets to me and animals to me are not uh, like not just a cute thing I follow on Instagram or when I see a dog, I smile. They are so much of the reason I get up in the morning. And so I'm happy to uh, be a part of that podcast. And of course, Dr. Judy, I'm so glad you came on the podcast. Um, and yeah, check it out, The Pet
0: Collective. Thank you. And of course, you can find out more about Kyle and follow him on social media. He has a website, kylekittleson.com, and also his Instagram handle is Kyle Kittleson. So we'll have all the links for you um, on the episode summary here. But I have one last question for you, Kyle, before I let you go, which is if people are listening right now and they say, I have a loved one in my life and I think that they need mental health support, but they just haven't seen the light yet. They haven't been open to it. What would you advise? These people to to say to their suffering loved one or family member.
1: Well, I would say two things. The first one is, I'm here for you to listen when you need it. Um, you can't say it slow enough, and you almost can't say it loud enough. Because if you say, "All right, well, if you need anything, let me know," that is not the same. You say, "I understand," and I want you to know that I am here for you, and I'm here to listen to you, when you need it. Open that door because so many people feel like the door is not open, even if it is. So open the door. The second thing is sometimes treatment and seeing a therapist or getting on a med is too scary, especially when you don't even know what you're dealing with. About 56% of people who go see their primary care physician for a mental health reason are misdiagnosed. So Mm -hmm. if you read that online, of course, you're scared to go into therapy or treatment. That's why I'm such a big advocate of education. Um, you can gift MedCircle memberships or just send them some free videos that we have on YouTube or send them some stuff on our Instagram account. I'm not even saying you have to go buy them a MedCircle membership. We have free resources for them as well. And you don't have to say anything with it other than I watched this. I liked it. I thought you might like it too. That's it. Mm-hmm. All yeah. your job, your job is not to diagnose, not to treat. Your job is to be available to listen and to support. And if you're not sure how to do those two things, which is okay, MedCircle also teaches you how to do that. It's a it's a great platform. We have lots of free resources. Um, and I'm, I'm just so privileged to anyone who wants to join us.
0: Well, thank you so much for that great advice and for the wonderful work that you do, Kyle. This has truly been a pleasure and honor for me to get to interview you today and get to know you a little better. Me and too.
1: Thanks, Dr. Judy.
0: I love you. You're the best. Thanks again. Stay tuned after the break for my supercharged tips of the day and an exciting giveaway. You don't want to miss it. Wow, guys, I hope you love Kyle just as much as I do. Can you tell that he's just such a wealth of information? And he's so open to talking about his depression, which I think is so refreshing. We've been talking about the stigma that everybody still experiences to some degree about experiencing a mental illness, but especially it seems to affect men more so than women. And so I think he's just such a shining example of what it's like to be able to be open about who you are, what you're dealing with, and also knowing that you can overcome it. So in the spirit of my conversation with Kyle, I want to teach you all how to become a better self-advocate for your physical and mental health. The first tip is to value yourself and your rights. Kyle and I talked about that a lot. We have to have self-compassion. Many of us have good compassion for other people, but when it comes to ourselves, we treat ourselves in such a mean way. And we say such negative things to ourselves that we would maybe not even breathe, to our therapist because it's so mean. So really empower yourself, take care of yourself, value who you are, and know that your thoughts, feelings, and needs are important, and that you deserve to be treated with respect and dignity at all times. Think about the story that Kyle told about how he was in therapy with a provider who fell asleep on him routinely for 5 to 10 minutes every session. Now that Kyle has self-compassion, he would never let that happen, but you can imagine if your self-esteem isn't locked in, you don't feel great about yourself. You allow other people to treat you in a way that, of course, then makes you feel even worse during your suffering. So definitely remember that you are valuable no matter who you are, what you've done, what mistakes you've made. That's really, really important to becoming a better self-advocate. The second tip is do your own research on your condition with credible sources, Please do not go into a subreddit. I'm not saying that there isn't good information there sometimes, but you just have to wade through so much junk uh, that it's not worth it. Really go to credible sources, express healthy skepticism. Diagnostic errors are common. I don't know if you guys know that there is such a thing called a diagnostic momentum where providers just look at the previous providers records and they just diagnose you with the same thing. And what if the first or second provider is wrong? Then that mistake carries over for the rest of your life. So if you're not sure, seek a second opinion and don't be afraid to question your doctors or disagree with them. The best doctors will welcome that type of questioning. The third tip is to be honest with your doctor about everything. This is really tough, but you gotta do it. Sometimes people go to their doctors, they're not honest about their substance use, And then the doctor prescribes them with a medication and they don't know that there could be potential side effects that are really adverse and maybe even making the medication not work in a good way. So really make sure you are honest to your doctors about sex practices, drug use, all of it. Otherwise, your doctors are not going to be working from a baseline that is actually going to help you in the end. The fourth tip is to take initiative and be proactive. So reach out for test results and follow up sessions. Don't wait for your doctor to call you. Okay. Go ahead and call them first and say, when are we going to see each other next? When are you going to get my test results back? And also, this is super important. Keep track of all of your own medical records. I know that some people are thinking, well, my doctors will have my records, but you should have a copy for yourself so that whenever you move, whenever you change doctors or when you add doctors, everybody can have the information and be able to work off of everything that you've done and be able to build for a better future for you. The last tip is to be assertive. Identify what you need and what you want and ask for them to be addressed. Go to your doctor's visits with questions, with things that you've researched, things that you're curious about. Ask questions about medications, whether a clinician washes their hands. That's very, very important right now. Everybody's personal hygiene. So don't be afraid to be assertive in your doctor's visits, and also in any interaction that you have with your doctor. And if you follow these five tips, you are gonna become a much better self-advocate and you're going to heal much more effectively and be able to pass that message on to others. And now for that exciting giveaway. The first 50 people who click on the link in this podcast episode description or on my Instagram account at Dr. Judy Ho will receive a discount code for 100% off their first 12 months of MedCircle membership. For anyone who signs up after the first 50, MedCircle will provide a seven-day free trial and 50% off their monthly membership. So thank you so much for listening to this episode of Supercharge Life. If you like the show and you want to learn more, follow me at Dr. Judy Ho. Remember to subscribe, download, and tell your friends about this episode. I'm Dr. Judy, and remember, anytime is a great time to supercharge your life.